Hi, and welcome to GovCast, where we seek to tell the stories about the thought leaders in government technology. My name is Michael Hoffman, and I'm president of Government CIO Media. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by Nick Saki, Peer Storage's U.S. public sector CTO. For those who don't know, Peer Storage is a technology company helping the government build a better world with data, AI, and machine learning. Before we get into your work with Peer Storage, Nick, we wanted to talk a little bit about you. So let's start there. Nick, can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to join the Army and what those first years in the infantry were like? It's very good to be here today. I'd have to say, why did I join the Army? Genetic defect, I think. My father was an infantryman. My grandfather was an infantryman. My great-grandfather was a sailor. It was the family business, and I was 24 years old and sitting in a cubicle in Atlanta and looked outside and realized that I'd seen all four seasons in the year pass by and really felt like I wanted to do something different. And I had this crazy idea in my head that I'd actually try and see if I could make a go of being a soldier. And if you're going to be a soldier, it is worthwhile to go do something that you can only do in the military. So my choices in my mind were infantry or armor, and all of my family were infantrymen, so I said, right, I'm going infantry. And that's really kind of how it started. And I initially only enlisted, I thought, for four years. You know, I'd travel, do a few things, get the GI Bill, and then ETS and go to college. Turns out soldiering is incredibly rewarding. It's an awful lot of fun. It certainly has its share of frustrations and tribulations, but... I loved it. I loved serving. I loved being in the company of soldiers. I loved what I did. Took a toll on my body, and at about the 10th year of my career, I got transitioned from being an infantryman to being a military intelligence soldier. And this is at about the time the Army was undergoing a massive modernization effort, digitizing the battlefield and employing computer systems and digital technologies in a lot of different places. And I adapted to it like a duck to water. The hidden part there is I was 24 years old when I joined the Army, and I'd come from Hewlett-Packard where I was a customer support engineer. So I knew a little bit about digital technology. And really, it was a matter of being in the right place at the right time. I had a certain set of skills that the Army was looking for. I moved into a field that was basically knowledge-based, and it just fit. I loved it. What was that transition like? Going from there to the intelligence field is a very different culture. What was that transition like, and what motivated you to keep going forward with that? I think it'd been my experience as an infantryman understanding what makes commanders tick, what do they need to know, how do they need to get their information, how do they need to consume it, what are they interested in knowing. It's actually a really good fit. You go from being the consumer to the producer, but if you have a sense of what the consumer needs, it helps you tailor and deliver the capabilities more precisely and makes you a lot more efficient. It also brings a sense of immediacy and pragmatism to the intelligence practice. It keeps you from chasing rabbits that don't need to be chased and keeps you focused on chasing the rabbits that actually are important. And it's actually a fairly common in my experience to find former combat arms guys who've become intelligence soldiers. And it's very true in the military intelligence officer ranks that a great many of them did their first two to four years in combat arms and then transitioned into military intelligence from there. So we all have a good sense of what is it that the combat arms, the commanders, the soldiers need to know in order to be effective and to reduce risk and to ultimately achieve their objectives? As a former intelligence officer myself in the Air Force, since <laughs> the Army, I got to say I completely agree. I mean, I think that a lot of the folks that I worked with during my career, if they had that time within the combat arms, they had a, a real advantage of knowing what type of intelligence products made the most sense for folks on the battlefield and in combat to make sure that. So what was it like for your career transitioning 
working on, you know, as an enlisted soldier, making that transition to intelligence, and then eventually getting to headquarters Pentagon and working from that perspective as well. Weird. Nothing in your professional military education, nothing in your professional experience prepares you for going from a line unit, an infantry battalion or brigade, a division for that matter, to being on the headquarters staff of the United States Army. It's just wildly different. The institutional army and the operational army exist to support each other, but the institutional army works in its own way. So that was an amazing education and an incredible experience. And you learn an awful lot about how the things that happen in the field or how capabilities are procured or how money gets spent ultimately translate themselves into operational capability in the field. But you also have to think huge. And the army is an immense organization. It's got worldwide offices, worldwide operations. It's got offices in 193 countries around the world, effectively. When you start thinking about, if we do this here, then they are going to feel it everywhere. So you become deliberate and strategic in how you look out to the future. What are you going to be building and what are you going to be doing in 2020? How are you going to build capability to support that? And in 2025 and in 2030. And the further out you get, the more you have to make some inferences and some assumptions about how is technology going to enable that? How fast is it going to evolve? What's it going to cost? What kind of people are we going to need? What kind of skills are they going to need to have in order to do it? All of these things come into what they call force modernization and what we call in business organizational design. So that was mind expanding to say the least, but it was really might have been one of the coolest things I ever did. When I reported to Fort Benning School for Wayward Boys on the Chattahoochee on the 4th of January, 1994, I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined that, you know, 20 years later, I'd be retiring from the headquarters department of the Army. And the journey along the way was phenomenal. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. But it also was really interesting preparation for moving back from serving as a soldier to the civilian workforce in the corporate environment. What has it been like, you know, retiring from the Army, transitioning over to the private sector, but still serving in a lot of ways? The work you do now at the Pure Storage, you're really tackling a lot of, you know, really important programs and making the government more efficient. How does that work for you and how does that keep you motivated? That's a really great question. I always like to say that I came back. So I was 24 years old and left Hewlett Packard, joined the Army for 20 years, and then went back into the IT industry. And I mean, I fled the tech industry. I went infantry, no technology. We've got rifles. We've got radios. That's about as high tech as it gets. My entire career was defined by where technology meets operations. And then ultimately, my career was defined by how do we leverage technology, develop and influence technology going forward to create the force of the future, to enable capabilities in our organization for our nation's security. And I don't think that it gets more profoundly, fundamentally important than that. So transitioning back into the IT industry with an eye towards, I know what we're making. Again, it's like going from infantry to intel. I've gone from being the consumer to being the producer and understanding what the problems are and helping shape what my company's capabilities are and also helping describe to the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, state and local and higher education organizations what we have that helps address the challenges that they have today, but also positions them with that same equipment to be able to address those challenges of the future and to build what they want to do, starting with things that they can acquire today. And that's really fundamentally one of the key things that I did 
in the Army, on the Army staff, and prior to that at Fort Huachuca doing capabilities development for intelligence systems. You know, how do you start telling people how you can accomplish something? What are the tools that are available to help them do that? And I literally have my dream job. If I sat down and wrote down the things I'd like to do for a living, I actually do that. So I'm living the dream. And it's pretty incredible, and it's an amazing blessing. And I would have never expected it. It's the, been the most circuitous route to get here. But looking back on it, it almost seems like destiny. There's been quite a bit made about how some soldiers have struggled to make that transition over into the private sector, into the IT world. Would you have any suggestions or recommendations for those going through that transition to get to where you're saying, yeah, I have my dream job? Part of what we have at Pure is, uh, like many companies, an employee resource group. And I'm proud to participate and help lead the one that appeals to the veterans in our company. One of the things we do for outreach is work with transitioning soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to help them translate the things that they know and the things that they do into terms that people in business understand. The truth of the matter is actually everybody does the same things. The thing is, is we use different language and different semantics to define what those things are. So how do I help you describe what your military skills are, the things that you've been trained to do and the things that you actually do, your activities, into how does business talk about them? You've seen this a lot on LinkedIn. If you take a look at military personnel's profiles, you're starting to see a language change. They've become directors and managers and executives, depending on their rank level and position. And they're starting to articulate their roles in business language, which is useful. But being able to adapt, that is the hallmark of soldiers. And the environments you find yourself in from day to day are highly variable. And soldiers are simply the most adaptable people on earth. And I I really mean service members when I say that. So if you can figure out how to do the adaptation from your military life to a civilian career and business or other forms of public service, it'll help you orient yourself and it'll help people orient to you as well. And then once you have your allies and your teams and a path forward, you can be spectacularly successful. And I think some of the guests that you've had on this program are living examples of that, starting with yourself, but Peter Newell also, who I knew when he was in the Rapid Equipping Force as Colonel Newell. And Brent Parmeter, one of his co-founders of BMNT Capital, was my brigade XO. Yeah, really? He was the XO of 2nd Brigade 1st Infantry Division when we were in Baghdad. And Brent Parmeter is one of the smartest people I have ever met in my life. And Peter Newell is intellectually his equal. Those guys really understand and adapt to situations and then take control of them better than almost any people I've ever met. But that's really what service members are designed to do is identify opportunity, seize the opportunity, adapt to changing circumstances. What they don't realize is it makes them amazingly valuable in business as well because what we know about competitive and business environments is that they are always changing. And businesses are always seeking talented people who can grow and adapt as market conditions change, as competitive conditions change, as economic conditions change, and help shape and steer their business endeavors through those kinds of transitions and capitalize on them. It's really fascinating to watch this kind of generation of military leaders like yourself, Colonel Newell and what have you, coming into the technology space and really having a leadership role at such a very important time in the period for national security agencies. You know, Colonel Newell's working on hacking for defense through your work with working with peer storage. You mentioned that this is such an important time for digital modernization. And this is something that you and I have talked about in the past, but what are some of the important parts now of setting up these agencies, the Army included, to really take advantage of the advancements of technology going forward? What I see is, as I go around our community and our space is everybody's got a hunger to do something. There's an awareness and a need 
for transformation and advancement in terms of technical capability enabling operational capability and strategic capability. Artificial intelligence is sort of the modern evolution of data analytics and big data analytics and things of that nature. And now we're using machines to actually leverage data to create new opportunity and identify things in our data that we were simply unable to realize ourselves. So that sounds great. We want to do AI. And the question becomes, how do we do that? I mean, artificial intelligence has been a very esoteric and specialized branch of computational science for a long time. And I've been very pleased to know some of the people who've been working on it, like Dr. Alex Cott, the chief scientist over at Army Research Lab. Well, I met him when he was the chief of AI at DARPA. So shout out to Dr. Cott. Most of everything I've ever learned about AI, I learned from him and then some amazing people inside of Pure Storage. But this is becoming mainstream. You know, supercomputing used to be the realm of, again, huge dollar budgets, large universities, and the U.S. government. You know, a petaflop used to be regarded as, you know, this inconceivable quantity of computational power. Now it sits in four rack units. You know, a DGX-1 can be had for considerably less than $200 million, a small fraction of that, in fact. But that puts the power of supercomputing and massively parallel computing really into the hands of much smaller agencies. Okay, so now we have the tools. Do we know how to use them? What are we going to do with them? The skill sets necessary for doing this kind of thing still are rare, and the people who can do it are gainfully employed and commanding a huge premium in terms of the value of their skill. So we need to know how to build it. Well, that can be accomplished. In fact, you know, one of the things that my company has done is actually build the world's first artificial intelligence-ready infrastructure. So we got the tools. We got the toolbox. We've got the things that make the tools work. Now do we know what we need to do in order to leverage that data? And that's the exciting part for me is being able to answer people who look puzzled and confused and concerned, like just don't even know how this works, and show them it's all right. The tools available to do this exist today. So we don't have to go build that capability. We need to learn how to leverage that capability. In government, if you've got to start from scratch, we're going to build an artificial intelligence capability. It's three years from the time you bring out the napkin sketch to the time you actually have capability fielded. Well, that's giving everybody in the world a three-year head start on us. So technology to help us achieve and maintain a strategic advantage is part of the reason why I'm in industry now and why I work where I work and why I work in the space that I work in. I got to say, you know, it's exciting to see kind of the new tools and opportunities that are there that companies like Pure Storage are providing. I think it's really coming on now. You hear a lot more uh, coming from the Defense Department, making it a priority. I mean, they recently made the announcement of the $2 billion investment that uh, for into research and development. With those t- levels of investment, where do you think that the Defense Department really needs to make the most advancement right now with that level of investment? So there are a couple of other things that I want to call out, too. I think the DOD is being extremely smart about this. There's a story I read, I believe, in Government CIO. Right. That at Good one, chat out there. <laughs> at one point last year, I think it was September, October, that you counted that there were 596 AI initiatives in the DOD alone. And... The DOD leadership, pretty smart bunch of guys. They said, okay, that's ridiculous and untenable and unsustainable. And frankly, all of y'all are probably working on very overlapping fields of research anyway. We're going to create a joint artificial intelligence center, and we're going to put it in Moffett Airfield, literally in Silicon Valley, where they already had the Defense Innovation Unit, no longer experimental. No longer DIUX. (laughs) And then the Army finally got the ability, had long had the desire, to create an Army Futures Command that kind of gets untethered from Army Material Command and, you know, RDECOM and so forth, it gets to become sort of the operational arm of what have been research and development activities. 
And they put it in Austin, Texas, which is probably one of the other great places in the United States, not the only, but certainly one of the great places in the United States to put a futures command. You've got the University of Texas complex. You've got Dallas doing advanced materials design with carbon fiber and carbon nanotubes and very, very superscalar, very small transistor architecture type compute. You've got the University of Texas with an amazing computer science department. There's an awful lot of capability there, and Austin's easy to get to for everybody because it's centrally located. So the Army and the DOD are getting really smart about getting evangelical and then actually sticking things outside of the beltway where the innovation and research hubs are in the United States. And, of course, they've always had you know a huge presence up in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area, leveraging the expertise and innovation coming out of MIT and Harvard. But we're seeing, I think, an, and more fundamentally and profoundly, an attitude shift that the Potomac Valley is not the center of innovation, but we have an entire United States where amazing things happen in various places. We're going there. And we're not just going on a plane for a TDY. We're setting up camp, we're moving people, and we're empowering those agencies to start really leveraging rapid evolution and innovation and technology capability to bring that into the national defense and security space and help us leverage one of the tremendous elements of national power we have, you know, technology, education, and research in a more efficient way. The government is huge. You know, it takes nine miles to turn around an aircraft carrier. It takes about nine years for the U.S. government to make a fundamental shift in the way they do things. But you're seeing it happen. You know, the wheels grind slow, but they do grind fine, as my dad said, about the Army. <laughs> eventually, it's, the Army's eventually consistent if you want to use a computational model. So I think that that is tremendously beneficial. The other thing that it does is it gives industry a local point of entry or a point of contact and a point of integration with the DOD and with the United States government at large. Rather than having to come to us, they can come visit and share right in their own neighborhood. And this generation of business people are very much more local and more digital and more dispersed and collaborative in that fashion naturally than we have been in the past. I mean, telepresence is an anachronism for them. I mean, I'm on my phone. I've got Slack. I've got, you know, a multitude of ways to actually work in a distributed way. But that's so I don't have to leave my house and be unproductive or leave my home office or leave my company's office. Because if you're going to fly from San Jose to D.C., you burn a day just traveling. It's six hours plus three time zones. So there's no convenient way to do that. So I'm really excited by what I see. And the Navy's always been very good about this, too. The Navy's research centers are all over the country. So you're seeing, you know, the whole government is starting to shift to let's go ahead and go to the country rather than insist that everybody come here. They've changed it and they've taken, you know, I would say, even a risk, you know, establishing these places, you know, making Army Futures Command a four-star billet. That's significant in terms of a budgeting standpoint to be able to take real leadership there. It seems like that finally, I think the Defense Innovation Board has really helped in terms of having some of those experts in, in terms of industry, giving them raw feedback of this is how we need to do a better job. But what more could be done? I mean, we, we were talked about location, but it seems like from some of the work that I've talked to, to so some of the start, you know, not necessarily some of the newer technology companies, that still it just takes a little too long to get some of this into government. What more could be done there? I think that a lot of it now revolves around the acquisition side. Mark Zuckerberg famously said, fail fast and fail often. I think I heard a better iteration of that, which is fail smart and fail fast. But the kind of iterative design and development um, that industry is taking at their own financial risk is unacceptable in the framework of how the government handles taxpayer dollars. 
And given the way we procure or acquire things, by the time an acquisition gets made on an item, very often the manufacturer of that item ain't making it anymore. You know, a technology product typically has about 18 months of shelf life in its current version. So the government's acquisition system is almost designed to buy obsolete stuff. And you can't buy things that don't yet exist, which would be, for example, in our company's case, the next generation of our product. And I can't tell you what it is either, because 18 months from now, what we think we're designing today actually might wind up being very different by the time it goes through testing and it hits the street. So what we've got to figure out is how can we adopt technology in a faster, more consumable fashion in an organization that spends $4.4 trillion a year. The need alone is huge. When the Army procures something or the Navy procures something, they got to procure 600 of them. Um, so they're buying them in blocks of time. What we want to try and do is start looking, I think, for capabilities where obsolescence is actually not an issue. And that, that can't apply to everything. Mechanical things do break down and they do get improved over time. But technological things, I mean, I almost forget what generation of iPhone I'm on because essentially it gets tech refreshed for me at no additional cost every two years. There's no reason why other technologies can't be procured the same way. And it doesn't cost me any more two years later than I'm currently paying today. So industry is adapting its sustainment models to support this kind of thing so that essentially what happens is the technology gets refreshed in place while it's in operation. So imagine trying to replace jet engines in an aircraft that's in flight. That probably can't be done, but it absolutely can be done with technology. A computer can definitely be upgraded without any downtime. And then periodically, a tech refresh to the current model should occur. And that's exactly how you know, you're seeing sustainment models evolve. And particularly, I mean, I know my company did it. And as a result, several other companies did as well. This is starting to happen a lot in the storage industry. The truth of the matter is, I'd say we adapted the model from the car leasing business model or the cell phone sustainment model. And we're going to produce a new model two years from now. But the other nice thing is, if you take a look at how Apple, I'll cite as an example, sustains smartphones, they don't make the old phones anymore. So it keeps their supply chain short. They don't keep a whole bunch of spare parts or old systems lying around waiting to fix problems in new systems or fix you know problems in a four-year-old piece of equipment. Why not just give you a new one instead? It's cheaper and easier. So I think acquisition policy is going to have to adapt. I think that we're going to have to be willing to take more risk and recognize that we are taking those risks and there will be failures. I think that that's probably the next big challenge. The technology is evolving. The mindset's evolving. Will the policy evolve to be able to support it? And I think it will because it has to, and we all recognize it has to. But some of these changes are going to come through the most deliberative body in government, the Congress, and that's going to take a while. Tell me a little bit what storage means to, because it's not the sexiest word. You know, you don't hear people talking about buzzword bingo with storage. But at the same time, I think it's really fascinating your explanation of how important storage is to making these emerging technologies such as AI and making it meet the expectations that folks have for it. So I went from being an infantryman to being an intelligence analyst to being ultimately the intelligence information architect and technology and integration NCO for the United States Army. Why did I get into storage? It's about as sexy as tires, as I like to say. Nobody's ever complimented me on how awesome my tires look. They compliment me on my car. But whether you're driving a Tesla Model S or you're driving a Ferrari 455 or you're driving a Toyota Camry or you're flying a 747, you don't make contact with the ground. You don't get any performance out of the vehicle unless you have the right tires. So it's a very unglamorous, round, flat, black piece of rubber that delivers all the performance that the vehicle's capable of delivering. Storage is the tires of the data infrastructure. I agree with you. Storage is a really unsexy term, and it sounds really static. We're going to drop data in there, and that's it. 
what we've kind of started talking about, and this is actually happening across the industry, is when you talk about a service-oriented architecture or disaggregated architecture where there's a network service, a compute service, then there's a what? A storage service? No, actually, it's the data service. So storage may not be sexy, but it is absolutely the thing that connects the data to the enterprise. And if the storage is slow, it doesn't matter how fast the other two things are. You can't move the data fast enough to actually process it in, in a relevant and useful period of time. So we're talking now about that as data service or the data service component. And that's why I do what I do. The faster we can move that data, the faster we get to insight, answer, and advantage. The faster we're able to mitigate risk or discover a danger. And awareness is exactly what an intelligent soldier does. In military intelligence or business intelligence, the desired outcome is the same. We want to mitigate risk and obtain an advantage. The application of that is fungible. But the set of skills that you have as an intel analyst are the same set of skills you have as a research analyst in, you know, biopharma or what have you, or in business intelligence or in the stock market as a financial analyst. I can't make any decisions until I have not just data, but information, intelligence, and knowledge. But it all starts with how fast can I move that data? How fast can I move it to compute? How fast can I move it from compute back into the data service element so that it can be used by something else? And then how are we making that data available as services to other analytic capabilities, other operational capabilities that may also want to use the same data? And that actually starts bringing the conversation around to storage actually is sexy. Storage is what makes the car accelerate. You go zero to 60 in you know 2.9 seconds because you've got Pirelli P0s and not bicycle tires on your car. You know, flash storage or memory-based storage is one element of that. The protocols that are adapting and evolving to enable non-volatile memory express over fabrics or massively parallel and concurrent low latency access to that storage are also helping a lot. Once we bring storage into alignment with the performance capability of compute and networking, we will get the kind of accelerated timeline and delivery of data to information or data information intelligence to knowledge that we need to actually have advantages in our organizations and in our missions, and particularly in helping secure the nation against threats. So that's why storage. I love the uh, comparison to the bike tires and the car tires. I think it makes it a lot more realistic and understandable of the importance of storage compared to some of the other explanations I've heard over time. So I've enjoyed it. If you put bicycle tires on your Ferrari, you get bicycle-level performance. It's right? not going to perform like you're hoping for. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. I don't want to focus too much on national security because I think one of the more interesting projects that Pure Storage is working on, too, is healthcare and some of the work, especially what they're doing in some of the cancer research. Could you talk about some of those projects that wow. Pure Storage is working on there and some of the real opportunities to make a real significant change? Mind-blowing advancements in especially biomedical research in cancer pathology and genetics. These are computationally stupidly difficult problems. There's a partner of ours, a company that we work with called PageAI, who actually do computational cancer pathology. And I like this use case because they're taking slides of cancers that as they evolve or as they have evolved, they're biopsies essentially, and then they're scanning them. So this is not a 128 pixel by 128 pixel image. It is a five gigapixel image. It's extremely high resolution, which is interesting because if you take a look at the ISR space, you've got very high resolution imagery from overhead platforms, from aircraft, et cetera. To a computer, an image of a cancer slide and an image of the earth as seen from space are exactly the same thing. It's a set of pixels. What we're applying artificial intelligence to do in the case of PAGE is identify, is this segment of this slide cancerous? 
okay, what kind of cancer is it? Of these 135 million other slides, what else is cancer? And how has it evolved over time? And what are the factors that cause it to evolve the way they did? Once we understand how the cancer evolves, we can start getting at the question of how do we mitigate, prevent, or destroy it? And that's the other part of this is, you know, is genetics. How can we identify people who are at risk for specific problems? And how can we apply technologies like CRISPR efficiently, safely, and effectively to modifying genomes so that we can mitigate those problems or cure those diseases? It is staggeringly cool. Computationally, it's monstrously difficult. And this is why GPU compute, as an example, today really the state of the art for this kind of thing has become essential. When you can put 48,000 computational cores in four rack units, you got a supercomputer in a broom closet. That's part of the problem. I said there are 135 million slides at five gigapixels. They're kind of big images. You got to be able to move through that data really quickly. But it also kind of reminds me computationally of movie rendering. So you're taking, you know, a digital movie and you've got to actually render it from its original computational definitions into an actual film. Well, it's a massively parallel data move. It requires huge volumes of throughput in order to actually do it. And you can't be rendering a movie for nine months. You do kind of have to get the thing to the movie theater. So all of these computational problems are literally very, very similar and sometimes exactly the same. But building an architecture that supports that is actually kind of one of the things that gets me out of bed every morning is how can I help you be more effective and achieve your dream and cure cancer? Or my son has neurofibromatosis type 1. How do we get that out of his genome? Because it can cause him some serious problems as he grows up or epilepsy or the number of things that we could potentially mitigate or cure are limitless. And the two things that are driving that, do we have the data? And the answer is thankfully, we've got quite a bit of data. And can we process it in a meaningful time? And that answer is starting to become yes. And outside of national laboratories and huge supercomputers, can we democratize supercomputing? I think we can. That's a really interesting point. I mean, because if you can democratize it, it gets in so many more hands, so many more folks are taking a look at those opportunities. I mean, it makes me wonder how fast this is going to ramp up, especially if you democratize supercomputing. How fast do you think it could go for the next five years? It's one of those things that's incredibly difficult to say. If you ask anybody what is the economic value and the level of capability that artificial intelligence is going to deliver, I've seen numbers as low as $2 trillion. I've seen numbers as high as $30 trillion of new economic activity. It is clearly something that is going to dominate our existence economically and technologically in the next 10 to 20 years. We just really have almost no way of appreciating how profoundly that's going to happen. And then the thing that I'm excited about is is you start having AIs that are able to diagnose these cancers and diagnose how they will most likely evolve and metastasize or what the effects of a particular gene in your genome are going to be on your life. And you can start correlating these things, then the AIs can start assisting us in defining how do we treat that? How do we effectively do this? And how do we save lives in the process? I think that the potential for changing and improving our lives is staggering and almost incomprehensible. So I don't know that I necessarily have a good answer to the question, but I see glimpses of the possibility, and I'm alternately breathtaking and incredibly energized by it as well. We talked a little bit about data and the importance of data. Who has the most data is the government, right? You know, in the government agencies. So it seems to me that as these relationships continue to improve within the industry and these different technology companies, getting access to that data could be a real game changer. Would, would you agree with that? I would. And one of the things I think the government, especially with you know data.gov 
and the information sharing that the National Science Foundation tends to do, the government makes available an awful lot of its data sets, which is excellent. You know, if it's not classified, usually it's just available. Moving that data is monumentally painful, depending on the data set. And to your point, this is the U.S. government. All data is big data. There's no small data. <laughs> but that also means that there's a lot of training data sets and a lot of really valuable data that can be leveraged you know, in the open to anybody. So if you need to get a training data set of a huge budget, we got one of those. If you would like to compare all of the federal budgets ever and see where growth has happened or where if you really start getting into data on how the money was spent, you can start finding inefficiencies, whether they were deliberate or accidental, and start to get a good sense of how we actually move a resource or utilize a resource. Traffic data, um, seaport data, imports and exports, gross quantities and tonnages of cargo. I mean, all of this data is out there. So it becomes an incredible repository for places to start training AIs. And, you know, so it gives you training data sets that you can work with, depending on the questions you're asking and what you're trying to develop a capability to support. I think that's great. I think even more is better. And we frequently heard that from pioneers in artificial intelligence development. Google's head of AI says, we don't have better algorithms than everybody else. What we have is more data. And at Stanford University, their chief AI scientist says, if your boss asks you, tell him I said to build a data lake. The key to developing advanced capabilities like AIs is actually giving them more and diverse data. If you think about training an AI like raising a child or educating a child, it's exactly that way. We get exposed to more and more diverse types of data over 12 to 18 years of education. That's really what makes us better educated is that we are simply more comfortable with a broader variety of information. And the better we synthesize that and the better we train our brains to synthesize and work with that data really improves our effectiveness and our efficiency as human beings. AIs at this point are anywhere between three and five years of maturity and human equivalents. We've got some really sharp preschoolers and some pretty smart kindergartners. The more data that we can expose these algorithms to, the more they will mature and the more intelligent they'll become. But that's a process of literally exposing them to more data. And the difference is you can expose an AI to huge quantities of data in fractions of the time that take you and I to consume it and synthesize it and work with it. So more data is better. So keep feeding the AIs. One of the issues that you mentioned a little bit earlier on the show was the workforce issue. And you've been on both sides of it, spending your career in the Army, working in intelligence, and now being on the industry side. How can government do a better job getting folks, some of these most talented folks, to work inside government to be a part of this? Ooh, that's a really great question. You know, some of the great attraction to working in government is you are serving. On any given day, what you're doing actually matters. It is in the service of the country. It is in serving your fellow Americans, your fellow countrymen. It's in promoting safety and security. It's in promoting health care and welfare and national defense. You cannot get that sense of mission and that sense of duty satisfied in almost any other way because nobody does government for the money. We just don't get paid, you know, what people make in commerce. So you need to appeal to their sense of mission and their sense of contributing to something greater than themselves. I can see a program where there's a joint venture or program between industry and government, and you hear about these, where there's internships, where the best in industry come into the government and their company continues to pay them a portion and the government pays them, you know, a negotiated contract salary rate. And the net impact to the worker is they're still getting paid the same so they can continue to afford their lifestyle, but they're making contributions in an area that are going to influence how the country functions. 
and benefit, ideally, their fellow citizen. And I think that that's a potential way to work that. Otherwise, you've got the revolving door, which is more a function of market economics than anything else. I have a set of skills and talents, and they are in demand, and I'm going to go make a living with those while they are in demand. And I may come back. One of the guys that I admire an awful lot, if I hope he hears this, is Eric Schmidt. You go from Google to the Defense Science Board. Now, that's a radical change in lifestyle. That's a radical change in venue. It's a radical change in social culture. But he could have stayed at Google. But it was more worth his while, his personal satisfaction, to come into government and to provide his expertise and his insight and his contacts to how do we do innovation? How do we uh, leverage the tremendous capability that this country has in its industry and in its people and use that for the benefit of all Americans. I think that that's just that's a tremendous example. So I'd like to see more public-private partnerships. I'd like to see internships or fellowships. I'd like to see those applied in places where they really make sense. And I think that that will be tremendously helpful. It'd also be pretty low risk. It doesn't cost the government any more necessarily. The thing it actually does cost is opportunity cost for the company ponying up their best talent. So we've got to figure out how this is beneficial on both sides, just like any other arrangement. This week's episode is supported by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about Lumina, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. I want to thank you for joining us here, but I want to ask you one more question uh, before we let you go here. What is the project that gets you most excited working at Pure Storage right now? Hmm. Well, we have pretty much revolutionized primary storage on-premises, and really now what you're starting to see us do is export data services seamlessly, easily, and adaptably to things that are not on your premises. So stay tuned. We'll have some pretty interesting announcements next month around what are we going to do next. The thing that I love about Pure is it's kind of like other products. People do things that we set out to do before we do it. But we won't do anything unless it's elegant, it's simple, it's bulletproof, and it's awesome. So to do those kinds of things, to take you know, synchronous replication and make it literally transparent, to make a storage array that's a petabyte in size manageable by one person you know, for five minutes a day, it's kind of like, why do anything badly when you can put in the extra time and effort and make it easy? So anytime I look at something that we're talking about doing, I can't wait to see the pure twist on it. Okay, so how is this actually going to be, you know, a hallmark of our engineering and our product design and our philosophy on how we go to market? And I never fail to be surprised and delighted by what our engineering staff is able to pull off. It really is perhaps one of the most talented groups of people on the planet. And they really have a good time doing what they're doing too. The smile on their faces when we're astonished by what they've done when we do product launches is always really gratifying too. They're like, yeah, we pulled it off. I can't say, but it is going to be really cool. That is a great teaser. So we're just going to have to have you come back and join us when that announcement is made and we can talk more about that. But for those who want to learn more about Pure Storage, we've been lucky enough to have Nick appear on some of our video interviews and speak at some of our events. So I'd really encourage to visit governmentciomedia.com and learn more about Pure Storage. You can visit their website as well. Really exciting programs and projects that they're working on as you know, Nick was able to talk about a little bit with us today. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. 
GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. Thank you.